Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. A lot of us in academia think the whole world is on our schedule, so forgive me for the following. Welcome back to campus to all academics and students, and welcome to September for everyone else. I'm Peter Sabota. I think of social workers as the first responders to poverty. So states our guest, Dr. Mimi Abramovitz. In this episode, the first of a two-part podcast, Dr. Abramovitz discusses the so-called privatization of human services. Dr. Abramovitz describes the recent history of economic conditions and historical changes in United States social welfare policy and its subsequent impact on human service agencies, their workforce, and ultimately on the clients they serve. She will introduce the concept of new public management, the impact of the Obama administration's policies on the welfare state, and how the political use of fear has encouraged many citizens to cast their votes for leaders who favor policies that do not reflect the citizens' best interests. Dr. Mimi Abramovitz is the Bertha Capen Reynolds Professor of Social Work at the Silberman School of Social Work at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. Her research interests include women, work, poverty, and social welfare policy. Her research has appeared in major academic journals within and outside of social work, as well as in the popular press, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Ms. Magazines, Women's Review of Books, and Women's E-News. Dr. Abramovitz is the recipient of numerous awards for her overall contributions to social work and social policy and has been inducted into the Columbia School of Social Work Hall of Fame. Dr. Abramovitz was interviewed in June of 2014 by our own Dr. Uksu Kim, Associate Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Look for part two of this discussion in the near future. It is a great pleasure to talk with you today. We want to talk about the new public management and you related to your study. First, I want to start with the background of the study. What sparked your interest? in the topic? Well, that's really a good question because I'm very concerned about what's going on in the human services today. And the new public management is a name that some people have given to what's going on. But I'll go into that a little more. So if you've been in human services, you know that the work in the human services is never easy. We have some of the hardest jobs. We work with people who have all sorts of vulnerabilities. And I think of social workers as the first responders to poverty and these problems. But since about 2007, when we had that big economic crash, it was really a crisis. Things have gotten much harder. And I've been hearing my students, I've been hearing my practitioners who I know in the field talk about changes in the workplace. And they say things like, the clients have more needs, but our resources are getting tight. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough programs. At the same time, they also started talking about this greater use of performance measurement outcome, performance measure, out, outcome measures, increased emphasis on quantification and documentation. And they were concerned because it seemed to be interfering with 
what they were trained to do as social workers. That's what they were saying. And they were also being asked to do more with less on all these fronts. That's sort of, it means a lot of different things, but everybody nods their heads when it says a more with less. And all of this was affecting both its, how services are provided, but also the practice, what social workers could do vis-a-vis -vis their clients. I'm not a practitioner. I teach uh, public policy in our master's and our doctoral program, talking to students who are in the field, either in internships or a doctoral program, or mostly program managers. They've been in the field for a while. So I found hearing all this rather disturbing. But I didn't know exactly what was going on because, in, you know, in academia, we're like once removed. We're not in the agencies every day. So I wanted to know what was going on. I did know that there were similar trends going on in public education, like teach to the test. And also in universities, we're being asked to measure things more as competencies and so on. But I hadn't realized that it was going on in the human service agencies as well, the frontline human service agencies. So, and then when I started to read about it and started to look at it, I discovered that researchers in Canada and other countries were studying something that sounded very much the same as what I was hearing about. I didn't have a name for it. You know, in the United States, we hadn't named it yet, and we're still in the process of starting to name it. So they called it New Public Management, or NPM. Sometimes they called it managerialism. If you translate that, what that means is bringing the business model into social services with the emphasis on production, productivity, on outcomes, and so on. So that's what got me interested. My really concern about the, what's happening to the human service workforce and by implication to the quality of services that we can provide to the people who come to us every day. That's very good. You write a lot about the welfare state, and how does this new public management fit into recent trend in social welfare policy? Yeah, that's really a good question because it's really new public management is part of a really bigger shift in public policy that began in the mid-70s, a long time ago, and was institutionalized with Reagan in the 1980s. Remember Reaganomics? This is sometimes called Reaganomics, it's sometimes called conservatism, sometimes it's called supply-side economics, and today more people are calling it neoliberalism, which is a, a word that Americans don't understand because it means going back to pro-market dynamics, but it says liberalism, and we think of liberalism as meaning more government, but it really refers to, it's an economic term, meaning going back to like the laissez-faire economics. Anyway, so this shift that took place in the mid-70s took place in response to a second economic crisis that surfaced in the mid-70s. What happened is that there were these big shifts in the domestic economy and the global economy that slowed economic and economic growth and cut into profits. So if I can, I'd like to just give a little background about those two crises, okay, because they really frame not only what my research is, but they frame almost everything that we're doing. And social workers aren't so tuned into economics. And so I really feel like this is a way to bring some economic knowledge, deeply translated, if you will, into our understanding of what affects our work, the lives of our clients, and the agencies. So there were two crises. And the first one was in the 1930s. This is a famous crisis, the Depression, and when the economy basically collapsed, right? And so at that time, the nation's leaders decided that their economic woes were due to the failure of the market, the laissez-faire paradigm, which had been guiding their work 
really since 1890, 18, about 50 years. Of course, we didn't have big government then. We had mostly state-level government, and the federal government was just starting to get put into place, really. Anyway, so they said the market isn't working. It's not producing the growth we need. It looked the economy collapsed, all this hardship. So they called on the, the early federal government, small as it was, to step in and do something about this. And then you have all the people who were hurting, the workers and the poor. So they, we all know, they took to the streets. And they demanded that something happen to better their lives. So in the end, you can say that everyone seemed to agree that the U.S. needed a more active state to save capitalism from itself. Capitalism had collapsed. The market wasn't working. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Most people know that about the poor and the workers' social, but they don't know that the business community was also quite upset. And in fact, Roosevelt, who was president then, put a lot of the New Deal programs into place to get the economy back on its feet, which meant he subsidized business, farmers, as well as families. Okay, so everybody got a little something. And that's what we mean by a more active state. And the federal government started to get bigger then. So we got the New Deal. All of that was the New Deal, okay? And it ushered in its major, but it wasn't just a bunch of programs. It basically restructured the economy. So what, how did it do this? It restructured the economy sort of very generally by redistributing income downwards from the haves to the have-nots and expanding the role of the state. Those are two, it's a huge paradigm shift from the laissez-faire or pro-market model. And so what do we have? The New Deal included a progressive tax code, many, many tax brackets, the highest bracket taxed at 90%, higher taxes for everybody, it transferred social welfare responsibility from the private sector to the public sector. All those charity organization societies, and those, they were swamped by depression. They couldn't handle it. So the, the federal government, the New Deal people said, okay, it's time to bring the public sector in. We'll do it. And they started to actually just handle the management of the cash benefits that were being newly introduced at the federal level. And they shifted programs from the states, where most of the activity is going on, to the federal government. That's how we start to expand the state. And from the private to the public, from the states to the federal government. And they also supported social movements. They supported social movements. The labor movement in particular was getting organized because the working people were really upset by what's happening. And it gave fuel to the fire of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, this, before it merged with the AFL in the 50s. So they were organizing a lot of people. And the New Deal helped them by passing legislation that allowed collective bargaining. Okay, and things like that. And then the program also shifted. We know now, within hindsight, it wasn't formulated this way. It shifted some of the care work or the work that women do in the home from women in the home to the state. The state started to help to pay for the things, uh, housing, health care. Health care came later, it's true. That gave people money so they could buy food and clothing. So those are tasks that are assigned to women. So, so from the feminist point of view, you can look at the New Deal as making a huge change in terms of how women's work was organized. That's very interesting. So what about the second crisis? Well, yes, there was a second crisis. The second crisis occurred in the mid-'70s, but from about 1945 to 1975, which is a period between the first and second crises. And it started from 1945 because there was a depression, and then we went into World War II. So once peace got established, things sort of got back to normal. So at this time, the welfare state expands enormously that expansion of the state that the New Deals fueled actually took place. And it took place because it was a period of prosperity. There was strong economic growth. 
and their and new needs were emerging that needed to be addressed, and the government started to address them. The gap between the rich and the poor got smaller. Well, that was a result. And also the social movements were, especially the trade union movement by now, but now the civil rights movement that's underway. And by the 60s, you have the women's movement coming in. But So between 45 and 60, you have all the movements, the famous 60s, right? So from 45 to 60, the one after another, the movements built on each other, actually. And they made a lot of claims. They were asking for better housing, better wages, better working conditions, equal rights, end of discrimination. So the government responded with legislation and changes. So we had a period of social reform, expansion of the welfare state. And by the mid-'70s, the powers that be, if you will, or the nation's leaders, especially the business leaders, and some in government said, wait a minute, something's going on here. These too much, this kind of shifted the balance of power between the have and the have-nots as the movements were making gains that benefited the people at the bottom of the totem pole. So when a crisis occurs in the mid-70s, well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but when a crisis occurs in the mid-70s, you have a crisis now due to deindustrialization, globalization, exporting production abroad, economic growth slows down, profits fall. And so the business community and some in government get worried, like they did in the 30s, and they say, um, well, what's causing the problem now? So they blame the problem on the expanded welfare state, right? They said that big government, we've been hearing that now for 30 years, maybe 40 years, big government is the problem. And so, um, and they weren't altogether wrong. It's not that big government was the problem, but the balance of power had shifted, and the welfare state did play a role in that in a way that social workers would support, but the business community didn't. So for example, so access to higher wages, the wages were going up, during this period, and also access to social benefits. Were, there were more benefits, and they were more generous. Never really generous, but more generous. So if access to social benefits, what it did is it was like it increased the bargaining power of the people who were getting both the higher wages and the, the benefits, especially women and persons of color. So they got new leverage. It shifted the balance of power to those with less. So workers could avoid the worst jobs because of unemployment insurance, or they could retire, or they could get even single mothers could get welfare. It was called age-dependent children then. It was like a strike fund. They had a fallback. And so they could say, oh, I'll wait till a better job comes along. And so that was one thing. It gave the working population leverage so they could bargain as a group, and their unions could bargain with their employers. It helped women to escape dangerous interpersonal relationships. You know, if you're battered, you had someplace you could go. You didn't have to stay for economic reasons. But that was a new thing then, but we know all about that now. And it allowed persons of color to protect themselves against racism which was going on. So, so all these one-down groups got a little more power. And so therefore, the powers that be said, oh, no, no, that's not for us, <laughs> because they felt like it was eating into their profits because higher wages and so on, even to, and lower unemployment makes it harder for them to keep wages low. So they said, OK, the way to restore profits and economic growth was to undo the New Deal. So now, as I said before, this has been called Reaganomics, supply-side economics, conservatism, and neoliberalism. Whatever you want to call it, it's the same thing. They wanted to redistribute income upwards from the bottom to the top and downsize the state. So how was this done? If the people who don't know history, what I said now, just said may be a little unfamiliar, but what I'm going to say next, anyone in social work is familiar with these things, even if not in these words. But they were, how did they undo the New Deal? So the strategy for downsizing the state was tax cuts. 
right? We, we've heard nothing about tax cuts for 20, 30 years. Program retrenchment, budget cuts, the second strategy. The third one was privatization, shifting responsibility from the public sector back to the private sector. The fourth strategy was devolution, shifting responsibility from the federal government back down to the states. And um, a systematic attack on the social movements that were best positioned to like, resist this, what, the coming austerity program. So you see, each one of those parallels the opposite of what the government did in the 30s. And at the same time, now we're getting close to the 80s, and the same time we have the far right, maybe the predecessors to the Tea Party. But at the same time, the far right started to call for a restoration of a very singular version of family values, personal responsibility. Um, you know, welfare reform is a personal responsibility and work opportunities, Reconciliation Act. And one piece after legislation after another used the word personal responsibility in its official title, even though we don't refer to it that way every day. So they thought that they, this far right or the new right thought that the welfare state usurped parental authorities because they had too much control over the schools, weakened traditional family values, and enhanced the civil rights for persons of color in what was now, they thought, a post-racial society. So we don't need these things. The problems have been solved. We don't have poverty anymore, they said. All these movements have won everything they need, so we can get rid of them. And uh, they actually did. The most serious was the labor movement that, at its peak, represented 35% of all workers, public and private. Today, the private sector is less than 7% of all workers. Did you know that 93% of all workers in the private sector do not have union protection? The public sector stayed strong, that at 35%. So you met a few years ago that Wisconsin, Scott Walker was his name in Wisconsin, remember that? Yeah. Started to say we have to strip public sector workers of their collective bargaining rights, this thing that the New Deal gave them. So the public sector is holding on, but it's starting to lose ground because they kind of had their way with the private sector. And there's not, no one left in the union. I guess you may be wondering then what happened. So we were promised that the benefits of this new laissez-faire strategy would trickle down. But the data show that it didn't. You know that. Social workers know that. I know it. And the data show that this did not happen. Rather, what we have since the mid-'70s is a tax code that is much less progressive and much higher profits. The promised jobs and economic growth that was supposed to make things better for everybody did not materialize. Instead, revenues, government revenues dropped. The deficit grew. The reprivatized, deregulated public sector became the name of the game. Everything was moving in that direction. And while government spending fell, except for really the highly privatized healthcare sector, which has really a life of its own. So while the government spending fell, wages stagnated, poverty rose, and inequality reached new heights. So in the middle of all this, President Obama got elected. Right, yeah. We had a, such a hope high hope when he was elected. So undoing this New Deal was has been an agenda throughout the you know, 70s to 90s, almost. Well, till today, I would, you could say. But we weren't uh, sure of that at first. Okay, so I have to ask you this question. How did the policies of the Obama administration affect these changes? Right, well... Certainly, Obama's election was a historic moment in U.S. history to elect an African-American man to the presidency. 
is like it brought tears to all of our eyes, and it was, it was a total thrill. What has happened since then has been disappointing, but not all his fault. I mean, many people don't agree with everything he'd done. People who support him didn't agree with everything he'd done, but there's, there was a bigger problem than that, than, than disagreements. So remember there was an economic this crisis that we just lived through in 2007. Now it's already a while ago, but at the burst of the housing bubble, the crash of the banks, the bailout of the banks, and so on. That was around 2007, and we went into what now is called the Great Recession. Yes, it is called the Great Recession. We don't call it Great Depression. No, we don't, we, don't use, we don't like to use that. Why, why do you think we don't like to use that word? I think this is because of historical memory. People don't like that word. I think the phenomenon would be the same. Yeah. Right. And yeah, well, it certainly was a serious economic collapse. I'm not enough of an economist to say it's exactly the same, you know, in terms of what an economist would say between this and the 70s and 2007, but it was huge for this country and it had a big impact on the lives of everybody. And, you know, that housing bubble, the foreclosure crisis, mm -hmm. I said the crash of the banks. And many of the things that we probably don't even remember anymore that they just because they don't get discussed. And I think you're really right. This notion of depression is historic memory, and it's also the politicians don't like to use it because it makes it sound worse than it is. For those who do remember the depression, they say, "Oh my God, you know this can't be happening again." If you call it a recession, it sounds a little more like the ups and downs of the business cycle, which are sort of a more normal event. In 2007. It felt like a crisis almost comparable to the 30s and the 70s. But you only know if that's true in hindsight. You have to see it through to its end. But in terms of these paradigm shifts, there was a kind of hope, in the liberal community at least, that this neoliberal period maybe was coming to an end. Because the crisis in the 30s led to a paradigm shift from laissez-faire to liberalism. Then the crisis in the 70s led to a paradigm shift from liberalism to conservatism. So maybe something else was going to happen now. Maybe it would be a return to some more faith in government, a little more liberalism of the kind that social work supports. And we thought this because 30 years had passed since the last crisis, since the 70s, at least 30 years had passed. So we hoped for a more progressive, we, because I was one of them, I in my own mind hoped for a more progressive paradigm shift. And this was kind of sustained, you know, everyone's waiting and watching and the economists are writing their columns about what's happening and so on. Then, so remember when Obama introduced a stimulus package to try to do sort of the same thing that Roosevelt did during the New Deal, right? Right. Yeah, so he introduced a stimulus package and his opponents decimated it. I mean, he got something through, but much less that he wanted, much less than what the economy needed. And since then, there's been congressional gridlock. I mean, we don't have to go into this ideological gridlock between the Republicans who won't let anything happen in Congress. On Obama's side, he wasn't as liberal as some people thought. So you have a funny convergence here, but even his semi-liberal programs or his more liberal initiatives, except for the Affordable Care Act, really it's been very hard for him to get. Well, gay marriage, he got, he got a few things through, but it's been really, really uh, hard. And... I think it's ideological and also the rise of the Tea Party and the Tea Party really hostility to a black president. There's another whole story there, which is the role of racism in the gridlock. But So there's ideological gridlock, hostility to the government, hostility to racial progress. So the stimulus did some good. 
But since then, we have suffered. We have what they call jobless recovery. So the Great Recession is over, more or less, but we have really weak economic growth. The jobs aren't coming back as fast. I'm not sure if we've made up the jobs that we lost, so we may just be starting to make up the jobs. Maybe you know something about that data, but there are constant reports about this that are not always consistent. So, But we do have a jobless recovery. There's no doubt about it. We had the foreclosure crisis, which is still going on. They don't talk about it so much, but every once in a while, if you want to read about it, you can find out that more and more people are still losing their houses. And really, this congressional gridlock and what I think of as maddening, really maddening ideological polarization. And if I could just take a comment now, I mean, one of the leaders of the Tea Party and the Republican establishment, Eric Cantor, they lost his bid to, for re-election in his district, in, I think it's the 7th district in Virginia. So it's just, it's hard to talk about what's happening without mentioning it now, because it's all over the news. But he lost the election. He stepped down from being the House Majority Leader. And so there's a big debate going on now whether this is going to move the Republican Party, embolden them more, make them less moderate, move them more over to the right, where we'll get more of this gridlock, because the more establishment Republicans are the ones who don't like the Tea Party so much or be afraid that the Tea Party will defeat them. So the paradigm shift that was expected, this is another maybe sign that it's not going to happen, that it's going to go more to the right than to the liberal end. So it sounds like the Obama administration, the policies of the Obama administration, slowed down a little bit the process of dismantling the welfare state, but it didn't really stop and change the paradigm shift. Yes, exactly. That's what I would say. Yes, it slowed it down. And certainly the health care was a huge change. But what's interesting about the health care is that it's not really a government program. There's a huge government subsidy. But so do you think it's a privatized program? Is that what you'd call it? It's nothing close to universal health care program. That single-payer one that they were talking about. Yes, and the people have very strong opinions about it. And it's better than not having one, for sure. But I'm not sure it's going to eventually lead us to the universal health care we're looking for. Well, it'll be another 20 years because it took 20 years from the 1970s to get welfare reform because something happened in the 70s. And then it took 20 years because they said, okay, it's done. So people were afraid to, it was like a hot potato politically. People didn't want to pick it up. And also they thought, so it's been done (laughs) for health care unless it really crashes. We're just speculating now, of course, but Basically, it's run by the insurance companies, not the government. The government subsidizes people who can't afford the prices. But it seems like the prices seem really high for a lot of people, even with the subsidy. And the fact that 25 states didn't accept the Medicaid program, which was going to really make it easier for low-income people to access health care, and it wouldn't have cost as much, I'm hoping that one by one the states will change their minds. Some have started to do that because the federal government's picking up the bill for that. So this tension between private and public, which has characterized the history of our welfare state, which is going to get us to new public management soon, we're going to get to talk about that. So I guess we're saying that there was not the hope for a paradigm shift, and now we, it may be getting worse, but we really don't know yet. So keep your eyes open. But I heard some optimism in your discussion, which is I'm hopeful too. And since you mentioned some um, political 
event we have that takes place today. Before I ask you more about your research and new public management, can I ask you why is it that the average person seems to accept and even vote for leaders who favor policies that do not reflect their own self-interest? I get that question all the time from my friends, from my students, and I ask myself. So I've thought about it a lot, and I certainly don't have all the answers, but I come up with two things that I think play a role in this. One is, so to win public support for policies that undermine one's economic security and the common good. So people are hurting themselves and they're hurting the collective or the common good. So the people who, who supported the budget cuts and, you know, the people who supported undoing the New Deal and all that, they made calculated use of what Naomi Klein, have you heard of Naomi Klein? Maybe people have heard of her, calls the shock doctrine. Got a lot of attention because she developed the concept in relationship to the Bush administration's discussion of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and got people to support an invasion of Iraq when it turns out there were no weapons of mass destruction, which we found out much later. So that concept now is applied to a lot of different things. And what it really means is the shock doctrine is the creation or manipulation of a crisis. So you create a crisis, weapons of mass destruction, and then you get people to vote for a war, which they would have not voted for. In domestic policy, the crisis was the deficit. We basically gave ourselves a deficit by refusing to raise taxes, or let's say, put it this way, the country gave us a deficit by cutting taxes. If your expenses keep going up and you cut taxes, you're going to have a deficit, right? If you spend more than you earn. So if that Reaganomics policy hadn't been in a place all these years, we could have been raising taxes a little more and not had a deficit. And with the deficit comes the debt, because you have to borrow money to pay off the missing money. So shock doctrine. So you know, for years we heard about the deficit, how it was going to hurt our economy and how we had it. There was this discussion about if we don't raise the debt ceiling, if we raise the debt ceiling, we'll go off the fiscal cliff. And there's a discussion now but each year between the Republicans and the Democrats whether we can raise the debt ceiling, which apparently had been done for years and years and years by both parties until this fight, which has been ongoing, led to this debate about it. So you could say that while there were some real serious economic problems, the creation of the deficit, which many economists, the more liberal economists, were arguing was unnecessary because there was easy solutions. But ideologically, people didn't want to raise taxes. And you can convince people to pay more taxes, as Clinton did, if you target it, you tie it to something that they want. Clinton said, let's raise taxes to reduce the deficit. And he got support for it, but it was too short-lived. And so that was one thing, the shock doctrines. You make people afraid of what's going to happen to their economy, and then they say, okay, you know, like if people are afraid of crime, they'll do anything to make themselves feel safe. So the same kind of thing, people are afraid something's going to happen to the economy, they'll do anything to make themselves feel safe that it won't happen. So that was one thing. So the second thing was, I always say, they sealed the deal by playing the race card, the welfare queen card, the gay marriage, the immigration cards today, so that we set up the politics of fear and hate, which keep people divided, blinded to their self-interest, and until recently, demobilized. We see some mobilization starting to take place. People are sort of beginning to fight back. But So the shock doctrine, and then you bring in these racial divisions in a culture that is always ready to sort of jump on them, and especially when people are hurting economically, they blame the other. They blame the government, they, or they blame the people around them. So. 
I think that's what played a big role in people voting for things that really ended up hurting their own well-being. Who lost if Medicare is cut? Who lost if Social Security is cut? Who lost if welfare is cut? The average person. So all these two factors affect people's, or cloud, people's rational thinking. Yeah, that's exactly right. They, they can't see straight. Fear and anxiety, you know, we've all been there, right, for one moment or another. So, and you just can't think straight. The cloud is a good word. You've been listening to Dr. Mimi Abramovitz discuss the effects of privatization on human services on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.